Well, whatever time of day it is for you, uh, welcome to this uh, post-ELF uh, 2021 uh, session uh, on evidence for Old Testament history, uh, covering the period from Abraham uh, in Ur to Daniel's uh, Babylon. Uh, I did this material last year for the forum as a, as a pre-forum uh, seminar. Uh, and so you can find the uh, the seven videos that they broke that material up into uh, already on the uh, the ELF Focal uh, website, and you can find it through my uh, YouTube uh, channel, uh, which you can find in turn through my website if you want to. Uh, uh, my website also gives you access to info about me, uh, my books, my podcast, various freely available um, papers, and so on. Uh, some of which uh, relate to this theme of biblical archaeology, but I'm a I'm a philosopher by training. I have a, an amateur uh, interest in uh, Old and New Testament archaeology, and it's something that I've done several talks about and have published some material about, particularly in the New Testament area, uh, in various uh, books and papers that I've written over the years. So, uh, welcome to this session, uh, and let us uh, jump. In, I will take uh, questions in the chat function of Zoom here uh, after each of the sections, and I'm, I'm going to again break it down into sort of seven uh, sections of material uh, and pause after each to to scroll through the the chat and look at any questions that you've uh, typed in there, uh, which I will uh, attempt to address. And uh, perhaps at the end uh, we'll have time, um, if we haven't got uh, uh, too many uh, people to make it practicable, uh, to uh, share our, our screens and have opportunity for uh, some open discussion uh, at, at right at the end. But we'll do questions as we're going through in the chat just to, to make sure that I can kind of manage the time uh, better and keep us on track. Okay, so... Uh, Evidence for the Old Testament history from Abraham's Ur to Daniel's Babylon. Let's start off by uh, thinking about uh, neo-atheist Richard Dawkins and some comments that he makes about Old Testament uh, history, uh, particularly in his uh, recent book, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide to Atheism, uh, which is a sort of uh, slightly junior version of his best-selling book, The God Delusion, uh, uh, covers very similar territory as that, uh, aimed at a slightly younger uh, audience, perhaps sort of uh, older school uh, children and uh, young young sort of uh, undergraduate students, that kind of uh, pitch for this book. Uh, if you want a broader response to, to his book, I myself uh, recently published uh, Outgrowing God with a question mark. Uh, a Beginner's Guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate, um, uh, following a, a dialogue form response of a group of students uh, in a reading group who are uh, reading Dawkins' own book. Uh, and some of the material uh, that they uh, discuss uh, in my invented discussion in this book uh, relates to Dawkins' um, uh, critique of uh, New and indeed Old Testament history. So let's uh, focus on what Dawkins has to say about Old Testament history in, in that book. So Dawkins asserts that uh, biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. 
he asserts that uh, this or that Old Testament story uh, makes what he calls an extraordinary claim which he then says uh, requires extraordinary evidence. He asserts though that there is an absence of extra biblical evidence for the historical truth of certain uh, Old Testament stories and he asserts the existence of uh, extra biblical evidence against the truth of certain Old Testament stories. That is a whole lot of asserting, and I use the word advisably, that's a whole lot of asserting for a book that's supposed to be encouraging uh, young people and students to, to ask for evidence. And he doesn't provide uh, footnotes, he doesn't provide a bibliography. So how would we respond to these uh, assertions? Uh, so the assertion that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously, well that's simply a, a false generalization. Uh, of course there are some scholars uh, who don't take the Old Testament histories seriously. Uh, but there are scholars who do. That's just a false generalisation. <coughs> he asserts that this or that Old Testament story makes this, uh, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence slogan. Uh, this is a, a, a reheated form of a fallacious uh, Humean critique of uh, miracles and the believability of miracles going back to the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume uh, via uh, the American skeptic Carl Sagan. Um, Dawkins is kind of cribbing from Sagan's uh, version of Hume's skepticism in, in what philosopher Timothy McGrew uh, <coughs> calls the argument Sagani. <laughs> she goes something like this. Uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The claim that a miracle has occurred is extraordinary. Uh, therefore, uh, any evidence supporting it ought to be extraordinary as well. Uh, fourth, uh, I'm not sure what I mean by extraordinary. Uh, five, but whatever you come up with, it's not going to work. Uh, therefore, six, no one's justified in believing any miracle claim. Uh, that's really uh, what it boils down to. If you actually do the work of thinking, well, what precise kind of definitions and criteria are for uh, evidence uh, might be involved here, then you have to actually do the work of looking at the evidence uh, and making evidential judgments rather than kind of ruling out the believability of miracles in advance like this. Indeed, as William Lane Craig notes, the fallaciousness of Hume's reasoning from which this derives has been recognised by the majority of philosophers today writing on the subject uh, to be uh, fallacious, uh, to be fallacious. Uh, this is something I talk about at length in one of the chapters of my uh, book, Getting at Jesus, uh, a comprehensive critique of new atheist nonsense about the Jesus of history. Um, but to make the point about um, the majority of philosophers and, and it being philosophers, you know, not just Christian philosophers, but uh, philosophers of all stripes uh, on this issue, uh, I note uh, John Ehrman's book, Hume's Abject Failure. Uh, John Ehrman is an agnostic uh, philosopher.
So we have a false generalization, we have a reheated uh, fallacious humanism, we have the assertion that an absence of evidence uh, exists for the historical truth of certain uh, important Old Testament stories, and this is uh, an argument from silence. Um, philosophers are always wary about arguments from silence. We have a very limited access to the past. Uh, we have a limited access to the past through the known, the currently known, chain of its effects. Uh, let me make this point by noting that uh, only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history written by uh, Livy have survived. Uh, we have them in about 20 manuscripts, uh, the oldest of which dates from the 4th century AD. Only uh, four and a half of Tacitus's 14 books of Roman history have survived, uh, and that only in two manuscripts which date from the 9th and the 11th centuries. Uh, so there's lots of Roman history written by these guys which we just don't have. Arguments from silence make often an undisciplined shift from the, uh, the absence of evidence for or against a certain proposition to the truth or falsity of that proposition. But as atheist Victor Stenger warns, an absence of evidence is only evidence of absence when the evidence should be there and it's not. So if you should expect the evidence to exist if something were true, and then you find that it's not there, well, then you have a problem. Uh, I apologise, uh, my neighbour seems to have decided to do some DIY. I'll try and make sure that you can hear me. Uh, so, when the evidence should be there and it's not, um, but as we've seen with the, the example from Tastus and so on, it, it's often kind of quite random what happens to have survived from the past till now. I make a comparison here between uh, the Bible that I'm talking about mainly today and the Book of Mormon, for example. Uh, when we compare the Book of Mormon to archaeology, uh, we find a pervasive lack of expected evidence. So, a quote here, interesting, from uh, a professor of anthropology at Brigham Young University, uh, Dr. David Johnson, uh, who says, there is no archaeological proof of the Book of Mormon. There's absolutely no archaeological evidence that you can tie directly to events that took place according to the Book of Mormon. Now, now that's not the case with the Old Testament. Uh, one example, uh, Mormon 6, uh, 10 to 15, claims that hundreds of thousands of people were killed on or near the hill Cumorah during uh, a battle. And we would expect to find some artefacts left over from that battle. Um, for example, thousands of bullets are found at the site of the far smaller American Civil War battle of Gettysburg. Um, and although this uh, Book of Mormon battle was supposed to have happened further back in history, uh, it's also supposed to have been much larger. Um, and we know that uh, that kind of uh, you know, implements, skeletons, uh, weaponry, 
can survive uh, in the archaeological record for a long time. But nothing has been found at Hill Cumorah. Um, this is the sort of absence of evidence that begins to constitute an evidence of absence. So we've got a false generalization, a reheated humanism, an argument from silence, and finally an assertion of the existence of extra biblical evidence that is against, directly contradicts the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. This is unfortunately simply a matter of ignorance on Professor Dawkins's part. History and archaeology are the tools that we are looking at to respond to Dawkins here. Um, history is the the study of or, or record of past events, uh, especially events of a, a particular period or country or subject. Uh, and philosopher Daniel Little uh, notes that ultimately the historian's task is to to shed light on on what, why, and the how of the past to do that based on inferences from the evidence of the present, the evidence from the past that has survived into the present uh, and that we know about. Uh, Archaeology is often very helpful here. Um, the systematic study of the material remains of human behaviour. One caveat uh, quote from Professor John Monson here from the, the book Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith. Uh, he says that archaeological evidence, uh, like in the case of the literary evidence we were talking about with, with Tacitus and so on, archaeological evidence is, is scattered, random and incomplete. Um, just as the, the Bible's record of past events is uh, selective, uh, ancient and, and theologically orientated, and any attempt to relate these two sets of information is, of course, fraught with challenges. Um, and this brings up the issue that archaeologists and historians, as well, of course, bring different worldviews to their interpretation of data. Um, for example, if you have uh, Dawkins's view that it's never reasonable uh, to believe in a miracle on the basis of evidence, well, then you tend not to bother looking at the evidence too hard to see whether a miracle happened. You won't uh, include the occurrence of a miracle in your historical account, and so on. An important distinction that exists within the, the world of um, particularly archaeology when looking at the uh, Old Testament is the distinction between um, the schools of minimalism and maximalism, so-called. Um, Dr. Michael Heiser notes that for those unfamiliar with the minimalist versus maximalist debate over biblical archaeology, that the former, uh, the minimalists, basically believe that the Old Testament has little or no historical value, uh, as it was entirely written during or after the exile, the, the Jewish exile into Babylon. Maximalists, on the other hand, disagree <laughs> with the minimalists, but on what I call a, a continuum of optimism about the biblical text as a historical source. So there's a, a spectrum of views, um, but there's particularly this sort of harder line, skeptical, skeptical school of the minimalists who, um, particularly, they, they think that the, the Old Testament was written uh, around the exile period 
uh, and that therefore is uh, unreliable when actually treating it as a, a, a source of information about you know what happened in the, the 12th or the 10th century BC. For example, Dr. Israel Finkelstein, uh, he began as a, a minimalist. He, he says the world in which the Bible was created was not a mythic realm of great cities and saintly heroes, but a tiny down-to-earth kingdom. The historical saga contained in the Bible from Abraham's encounter with God and his journey to Canaan, to Moses' deliverance of the children of Israel from bondage, to the rise and fall of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, was not a miraculous revelation, but a brilliant product of the human imagination. All, of that, all those stories, they're just a product of the human imagination. But uh, Walter C. Kaiser Jr., on the other hand, from his book, A History of Israel, uh, here, and uh, this quote uh, from an article uh, he wrote uh, in 2017, uh, he says that the evidence is uh, for the truthfulness and historicity of the Bible continues to mount up as never before. Um, just when scepticism seemed to be making the most noise, we're being flooded with an overwhelming amount of real hard evidences that demand a verdict opposite to what minimalists are clamouring for. He says, never has any previous generation seen the amount and significance of evidences that are now available to us today. And th this is one of the great things about this area, because people are always discovering new things. Every time I do w one of these talks, I have to go online and do searches, uh, look at various archaeology websites and so on. Uh, I'm constantly on the lookout for new books uh, in the area to keep uh, abreast of developments and, and to see, you know, what's been discovered. Uh, in recent years. So um, Paul Copan, philosopher from the States, says the, the once doubted historical claims of the Old Testament, uh, whether the, the cost of slaves in the ancient Near East, uh, camels on livestock lists during the time of Abraham, uh, uh, the kingship of David, the mines of Solomon, uh, the metallurgy of the Philistines, or the existence of the Hittites, uh, turn out to be anchored in ancient Near East history. And that is a kind of important caveat at the end there, saying, you know, anchored in ancient Near East history, you can show from um, uh, extra-biblical uh, evidence, be it historical or archaeological, uh, that at the very least the Old Testament stories uh, turn out to be anchored in ancient Near East history. Um, you can't uh, always, of course, uh, give uh, extra-biblical evidence uh, for the truth of every uh, little uh, description uh, and occurrence uh, in the Old Testament record, but you know, in and of itself, uh, one needs to think about uh, treating the Old Testament record as itself uh, ancient uh, evidence uh, of events, uh, depending on what one thinks about the uh, the date of the writing. Uh, back to the maximalist minimalist debate, uh, for example. Uh, so one one overall point that I'm just going to drop in here before I, I pause to have a look at the, uh, the, the any questions that you've uh, typed into the, the chat here uh, is this point about uh, embarrassing heroes. You notice that F Finkelstein talked about you know, the saintly heroes of the Old Testament. Um, actually, most of the you know, heroic figures of the Old Testament aren't painted in particularly heroic terms by the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament repeatedly passes the, the historical criterion of embarrassment. 
the idea that, that people don't tend to tell stories that reflect badly on them or uh, their culture, their society, uh, unless the, the things that they're saying you know, happen to be true. Um, the Old Testament is brutally honest about the failings of its protagonist. Uh, you know, Moses committed murder, or at least manslaughter, um, and he tried to avoid God's calling to confront Pharaoh. Uh, King David committed adultery with Bathsheba uh, and arranged for her husband to be in the front line of a, a battle so he'd get killed. Um, the nation of Israel as a whole repeatedly uh, it fails to live up to its covenant with God according to the Old Testament literature itself. Um, so in all sorts of ways the Old Testament repeatedly passes this criterion of embarrassment which I think in itself is a, a signal and indicator of its reliability. And this quote from philosopher Lydia McGrew from her recent book Hidden in Plain View uh, which is talking about uh, some uh, apologetic aspects of the, the history of the, the Gospels and Acts but her argument here uh, can apply. Uh, she gives this nice analogy for the, the argument that she gives uh, and she says uh, if, you, if you sample a loaf of bread uh, on both ends at several points in the middle and you find it good, good to eat uh, it would be cavailing. It would be being far too sceptical, being overly sceptical, to say that, well, perhaps just the parts you haven't happened to taste yet would turn out to be the mouldy ones, would happen to be the mouldy ones. In other words, if we have repeatedly tested some testimony where we happen to be able to independently test it, uh, the more that independent testing uh, validates the source of testimony that we have, uh, it becomes increasingly uh, too, uh, a matter of being too sceptical to kind of say, oh, the bits of that testimony that we happen not to have been able to independently test would all just turn out, by luck, kind of be to be the bits that are misleading, that aren't reliable. Uh, so that's the kind of overall argument that we can apply to uh, you know, individual uh, books, sources within the Old Testament and to the Old Testament uh, as a whole. Okay, well let me go back to, uh, to screen sharing and we'll uh, start off here with uh, Abraham's Ur. Uh, at each of these sections, I'll, I'll give uh, this framing of the biblical geography and uh, biblical timeline, which you can find uh, on the PowerPoint, which is, by the way, available uh, in the forum app. I uh, updated it and uploaded a, a newer, newer version uh, earlier today as well, uh, in case you've got a old, slightly older one. So here is a, a map of the uh, geography of the, the biblical uh, world. Here we have uh, in the middle... Uh, Israel, uh, but if we go right here across Arabia to the towards the Persian Gulf, uh, we have uh, the call of uh, Abram uh, in Chaldea uh, down here. That's the sort of geographical area we're at with Abram at the moment. And if we look at the uh, the timeline, we have a, a timeline of the biblical, uh, the Old Testament story at the top, and at the bottom, 
relating to various uh, Middle Eastern empires uh, of the time through history as well at the bottom. So uh, in the era of the, the, the patriarchs, uh, as it's called, the patriarchal era, uh, Abraham uh, looking around about uh, 1900, uh, so 1900 years uh, BC. That's when we would date this. This is just a, a, an astonishing uh, little statue. Um, it's uh, about a foot tall. Um, I've seen this uh, several times in real life because uh, I'm fortunate to living in the UK. Uh, we have a great source of biblical archaeology in the British Museum, which is uh, well worth uh, a visit if you happen to to be in or get to visit uh, the UK when. Um, international travel is uh, once again allowed uh, and this is called the uh, the ram in the thicket although actually it's uh, a statue of a, a markor which is a large species of wild goat uh, but it's a statue that comes from the royal cemetery uh, in uh, Ur uh, it's a goat uh, perched against a bush uh, looking for food um, people see this and of course you know why it's called the ram in the thicket as people will immediately think of Genesis 22 13 Abraham looked up and there was a in a thicket he saw, saw a ram caught by its horns uh, and so on uh, so this is I'm not showing this as a you know proof of the biblical story or anything like that but this uh, statue comes from the culture that Abraham came from uh, and is just uh, sort of really brings to life uh, the the craftsmanship, uh, the beauty uh, that that culture was able to produce. Uh, and when you think, you know, this is an artifact from the time uh, of Abram, uh, uh, and certainly shows that uh, you know, <laughs> of course, uh, animals were looking for food in bushes around that time, as they no doubt do uh, today as well. Uh, but isn't it just uh, beautiful uh, and astonishing that we have uh, these artefacts from the Royal uh, Cemetery in Ur? Uh, a little bit more to the point, and, and still talking about you know, cemeteries and burials, uh, is human sacrifice in Ur. Uh, as Jean E. Jones notes, in Abraham's birthplace of Ur, relig religious rituals included human sacrifice. Uh, one of the most startling excavations from Ur is the so-called Royal Cemetery, uh, where that ram came from, uh, with its uh, pits containing human sacrifices, uh, most of them adults. Now, Abraham moved to Haran, not far from other sites where human sacrifices have been uncovered from the same age, the same era. Although there were also infant sacrifices in these regions, uh, these are mostly adult sacrifices uh, and this is significant because at the time God tested Abram by asking him to sacrifice Isaac, uh, Isaac was not a child uh, as she notes. Um, uh, you can tell that from things in the story like uh, Abram uh, carries all of the uh, wood up to the, the top of the, the hill for his father. Uh, the Nizi tablets, as they're called, are quite interesting. Uh, There's a picture here, and they, you can see there are clay tablets with the cuneiform uh, writing uh, pressed into them by little styluses. 
Uh, it's a form of writing, you know, specifically designed to be uh, easy to use with with clay. Uh, you little press little indentations into the clay, and then it dries, and you have the the writing preserved. We have lots and lots of clay tablets. Uh, the uh, Nizi tablets from the uh, Tigris River uh, region, uh, east of the Tigris River, turned up about 20,000 baked clay cuneiform tablets uh, where the city of Nizi once stood. And they're just uh, tablets that happened to have survived till now that, that talk about various cultural practices that are very similar to those that we see in events of the biblical patriarchal period around 2000 to 1500 BC. Uh, and these tablets have to do with all sorts of cultural things like marriages, uh, adopting an heir, uh, surrogate motherhood, uh, inheritance, uh, and so on. And they just kind of reflect and, and fill out the cultural uh, background or cultural milieu of that patriarchal period in a way that's very consistent with what we see described as the, the, the customs in, in these kind of terms um, that are depicted in the patriarchal period in the Old Testament uh, books, um, which one might think might be quite hard for someone who was just making all this stuff, from, stuff up from their imagination during the Babylonian exile period to do when they didn't have access uh, to these kind of records about the, the culture uh, thousands of uh, years before them. Uh, you know, that you couldn't go and look this stuff up on Wikipedia uh, if you were a Jew in the Babylonian exile, right? Uh, this is what we call um, cultural verisimilitude, uh, or getting the culture right. Uh, academics like uh, long names for uh, simple concepts, don't we? So, uh, historian Paul Mayer observes that details in the biblical account regarding Abram, such as the, the treaties that he makes with neighbouring rulers, even the price of slaves mentioned there, mesh well, fit together well, with what's known elsewhere in the history of the ancient Near East, from sources such as those tablets. Uh, M.J. Selman writes that since the patriarchal customs can be compared without difficulty with a wide range of material from the ancient Near East, from the independent viewpoint of the historian, uh, the social parallels make the historical existence of the patriarchs more likely. Uh, Gordon Wenham uh, raises this interesting issue of why no mention in the patriarchal narratives of Baal or Jerusalem, given how important they are later on in Jewish history. Uh, he argues that the complete absence of Baal, and here's a picture of um, a relief of Baal, the, the storm god, uh, again from the British Museum. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, the absence of Baal from the patriarchic uh, tradition points to its antiquity rather than you know, being written later in history. Uh, in the second half of the second millennium BC, Baal took over from El as the leading god of the West Semitic pantheon, yet he's never mentioned in Genesis. Uh, this is intelligible if the patriarchal tradition originated before about 1500 BC, but not if it comes from later times. He also points out that since Jerusalem certainly existed in patriarchal times, uh, the failure of the patriarchal narratives to mention Jerusalem as a centre of worship is, he says, most easily explained 
if the patriarchal traditions not only originated but were committed to writing before Jerusalem became the principal cultic centre, uh, which was around uh, the beginning of the first millennium. To Dawkins again, he, he asserts that Abraham's camels are an anachronism, a, a historically out of place. Uh, because, as he says, that the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. So here's one of those occasions where Dawkins just says, you know, we now know that the, the Bible just gets it wrong on this one. Uh, well, this is, in fact, Dawkins getting it wrong. Um, as uh, Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen notes, it's often asserted that the mention of camels and of their use uh, is an anachronism in Genesis. This charge is simply not true, as there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and even use of this animal in the early 2nd millennium BC and even uh, earlier. Uh, Kitchen lists a bunch of evidence including a, a nine 19th to 18th century BC figurine of a kneeling camel from Byblos, uh, a North Syrian seal depicting deities riding camels from the 18th century BC, uh, references to camels in a Sumerian text dating to the early 2nd millennium BC. He, he says there are other traces of camels much earlier, e.g. in Egypt and Arabia in the 3rd millennium. The camel was for long a marginal beast in most of the historic ancient Near East, uh, including Egypt but it was not wholly unknown or anachronistic before or during 2000 uh, BC-ish, etc. Indeed, in his comprehensive study of the domestication of camels, Professor Martin Hyde, who's uh, been a forum speaker in past years, uh, concludes that the archaeological evidence points to the fact that the bacterian camel was domesticated before the dromedary camel, and was put to use by the middle of the third millennium or earlier. Uh, it says the gradual spread of the bacterian camel seems to have reached the Mesopotamian civilization sporadically by the middle of the third millennium and more frequently at the end of the third beginning of the second millennium, which is remember when we're talking about uh, the Abraham story. The archaeological and inscriptional evidence allows at least the domesticated bacterian camel to have existed at Abraham's time. So here we come uh, back to uh, the, the promised section on Exodus, uh, Exodus to the uh, promised land. Uh, so let's uh, situate again our, our timeline here in the Exodus period. Uh, and someone was sort of raising this issue of the dating because there is, it's fair to say, uh, an ongoing long-standing controversy over the dating of the Exodus amongst uh, biblical scholars, historians, archaeologists, etc. Uh, with two uh, kind of main theories uh, for the dating, uh, one of which uh, would put it in the 15th century BC, around about 1446, say. Uh, and one that would put it in the 13th century BC, around about 1260 uh, BC. Um, now, I'm not going to go hugely into that. Uh, a lot of it depends upon 
uh, how you relate the biblical material to external sort of archaeology. Uh, some of it relates to how you in, interpret the, num the numbers that are given. If you were to take the, um, some of the numbers given in the Bible literally, uh, you would definitely go for the uh, earlier date. But it also seems to me that there are plausible ways of taking those numbers uh, less literally, as a lot of numbers are, are used uh, in the Old Testament in a not particularly literal fashion, it seems to me. Uh, and that would fit with uh, what seems to be, I think, the majority, fair to say, opinion amongst the sort of historical archaeological scholars that a 13th century uh, exodus is most plausible. Uh, along with, uh, there's the, the Colin Humphreys uh, book, uh, The Miracles of the Exodus. And here's a, a couple of other um, very relevant uh, texts on uh, the historicity of the, the uh, sojourn in Egypt etc. Um, James Hoffmeyer is another uh, Egyptologist who's written quite a lot uh, in this area. Uh, his books Israel in Egypt and Ancient Israel in Sinai and he's one of the uh, co-editors of this uh, more recent book uh, Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt which looks at biblical archaeological and Egyptological that's difficult to say perspectives on the exodus narratives uh, from the bulletin for biblical research uh, one of their supplements uh, this is a very good text and um, this book where was the biblical red sea examining ancient evidence by barry uh, betzel uh, i haven't uh, had time to read this yet this is just out but it's getting uh, some good reviews and looks uh, looks very interesting to to take a look at on that issue so i'd certainly be interested to to read this uh, book if and when i get time and of course, uh, geographically, uh, we're looking down here in the uh, the area of Egypt, uh, just below the Mediterranean Sea here. Well, Dawkins again says, uh, you would think that such a big event as the enslavement of an entire nation and its mass migration generations later would have left traces in the archaeological record and in the written histories of Egypt. Um, unfortunately there is no evidence of either kind so this is a, an absence of evidence uh, argument uh, there's no evidence of anything like a Jewish captivity in Egypt um, it probably never happened although the legend is burned deep into Jewish culture and that itself is an interesting point uh, if you think that this is a, a legend as the minimalist school holds um, what accounts for the Jews coming up with that legend? You know, what other uh, people group uh, in you know thinking? You know, let's make up a the legend of our origins uh, would say, yeah, let's let's uh, let's think that we were we were all slaves. We've all come from slave stock. Um, it's not kind of the way that people tend to write uh, their legend. You know, the the ancient Athenians. Uh, for example, in their legend of their origin, uh, would say, you know, we are we are born from the land directly. We come from the Athenian soil. Uh, this is something um, Paul is writing against in his uh, talking against in his speech in uh, Acts 17, uh, for example. Uh, you know, all, all other people are literally kind of foreigners to the soil of, of Attica, of, of Athens, and uh, we are. Uh, the local indigenous uh, and this gives us kind of uh, higher rights than everybody else 
Uh, but no, the, the Jews just decide to say, yeah, we all come from from, from slave stock. Um, we, we, we used to be uh, an oppressed people, etc. Uh, that seems to be quite an odd thing, historically speaking. Well, also, here's a, a quote to respond to Dawkins from uh, an archaeologist, uh, Thomas Davis, uh, and he's a, a specialist in, in this area. Um, this is from his chapter uh, in that book edited by Hofmeyer, uh, Millard and Rendsburg, uh, Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt? Uh, this is from his chapter on Exodus on the Ground, the elusive signature of nomads in Sinai. And he says that there are no direct evidence has yet been uncovered to ground the Exodus in historical physical space. Uh, this absence of evidence is often interpreted as a direct challenge to the historicity of the biblical account. However, uh, the formation processes that affect archaeological data in remote desert environments, such as Sinai, and the nature of the archaeological signature of a migratory group force a reassessment of this negative conclusion, according to his chapter. He says, finding direct evidence of a single-use campsite of a nomadic people group that can be dated in isolation in the Sinai is a totally unrealistic expectation, uh, further uh, undermining that absence of evidence argument, I think. Kenneth Kitchen notes again that a tiny fraction of reports from the East Nile Delta occur in papyri uh, recovered from the desert near Memphis. Otherwise, the entirety of Egypt's administrative records of all periods in the Delta are lost. Uh, and monumental texts are also almost nil. And as pharaohs never memorialise uh, defeats on temple walls, uh, no record of the successful exit of a large bunch of foreign slaves uh, with loss of full chariot squadron would ever have been memorialised uh, in temples in the, the Delta or anywhere else. So again, Kitchen is saying actually it's you know, highly unrealistic to expect the Egyptians to memorialised and recorded that kind of defeat and even if they did record it in their uh, written administrative records uh, we have hardly uh, you know a very small proportion of Egyptian administrative uh, texts uh, that have uh, as far as we know survived or at least been discovered uh, talking about Moses Kitchen makes this interesting point when he says to explain what we have in our Hebrew documents we need uh, a Hebrew leader who had an experience of life at the Egyptian court uh, to get the, the uh, cultural verisimilitude uh, correct uh, including knowledge of treaty type documents and their format um, when we're looking at things uh, like uh, Deuteronomy uh, as well as traditional Semitic legal and social usage uh, in other words, someone uh, distressingly like Moses is badly needed to make any sense of the situation uh, we have it as we have it. And this is a picture of the, the Brooklyn Papyrus from the 18th century BC. Uh, plates uh, uh, 9 and 8. 
um, which contains some interesting names because the the Bible says that the Israelites became uh, you know after they were uh, went to Egypt during a, a famine and the family grew and, and spread across Egypt uh, now while all the documents from the Nile Delta have rotted away uh, because of Nile floods that cover the area annually for thousands of years um, we do have this slave list from the south uh, that has dozens of slave names on it uh, including biblical forms of names like Shipra uh, the same name as the Hebrew midwife in the Exodus account uh, Asher and Ishkar uh, now you know again I'm not saying you know, this this uh, proves the existence of the Hebrew midwife from Exodus because because it's the same name I mean lots of people can have the same name what it shows though are um, that people in Egypt who were slaves had the kind of names that the uh, biblical account attributes to uh, Jewish people who were slaves uh, at that time and place This is a lovely uh, picture from a tomb wall, uh, the tomb of Vizier Rechmeyer uh, from around 1450 BC. And it's interesting because it shows uh, Semite and Nubian slaves uh, and it shows them making bricks, uh, which of course is one of the uh, activities that the Bible says slaves were employed uh, in doing the the Jewish slaves in particular were forced to to make bricks in Exodus uh, 1 14 and 5 7 are the references uh, for that um, so although Dawkins says there's no evidence um, of uh, Jewish slavery we do have evidence at least of, of um, Semitic people being slaves uh, in uh, Egypt at the right historical period we can kind of say that much the linguistic evidence here is quite interesting as well. This is um, you know, scholars like uh, Hoffmeyer, Richard Hess, uh, Benjamin Noonan have documented both cultural and linguistic links between late Bronze Age Egypt and um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, uh, that they think point to the authenticity of those stories. Um, Noonan notes that given the observation that at least some of the Egyptian loan words in the Exodus and wilderness narratives were borrowed during the late Bronze Age it's likely that the events of these narratives took place during the late Bronze Age just as one would expect if they represent authentic history. Now, Edwin uh, Yamauchi uh, notes that the similarity of the Mosaic Covenant to the Hittite uh, Suezanity uh, treaties uh, which date from the uh, second millennium BC has convinced many scholars of the antiquity of the Mosaic Covenant uh, and again you can't definitely pin the name Moses on it because of that the Mosaic Covenant uh, but the covenant that is said to be Mosaic uh, that is in the Old Testament uh, shows a lot of uh, similarities with Hittite uh, treaties from that area and treaties the form of treaties change over time uh, again um, so the um, the uh, cultural situatedness of these narratives uh, in cultural and linguistic terms is being highlighted here uh, another point of cultural verisimilitude noted by um, Catholic scholars Scott Han and Curtis Mitch they note that uh, the Exodus story displays an accurate knowledge 
of local conditions described in the story such as the Egyptian agricultural calendar um, look at Exodus 9 31-32 uh, the use of uh, acacia wood um, which is indigenous to parts of Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula but it's not found in Palestine for example uh, they argue that it's difficult to believe that authors in post-exilic Palestine uh, could have known and accurately portrayed the conditions of second millennium Egypt. Uh, Stephen Mosher and James Hofmeyer again have uh, used information from geology, from archaeology, from digital topography and satellite imagery and combined this information together to produce a map of the eastern Nile Delta and Sinai Peninsula during the Bronze Age uh, and of course you know courses of rivers and things shift uh, over time but they've reconstructed uh, a Bronze Age uh, map of the area and then comparing that map uh, to the Exodus story they say that the restored geography of their map um, provides a, a plausible map of the region that's described uh, in the Exodus uh, texts um, if you want to pursue that, um, you can look up their article, Which Way Out of Egypt? Physical Geography Related to the Exodus Itinerary, uh, which you can uh, find uh, for free online. So uh, here is their uh, Physical Geography of the Eastern Nile Delta, Northwest Sinai during the Late Bronze Age. Uh, the Menepta Stele, uh, which is uh, in the British Museum. Uh, dated to around about 1220 BC, uh, the Menepta uh, Stele. Um, we've got some pictures and lots and lots of writing on it. Uh, it's an extra biblical record of a, a people group called Israel, um, set up uh, set up by um, Pharaoh Menepta uh, to commemorate some military victories in Canaan. Uh, it includes the proclamation: uh, Ashkelon is carried off and Giza is captured, Yonam is made into non-existence, uh, Israel is wasted, his seed is not. Um, this may be typical Near Eastern military uh, hyperbole, uh, you know, Yonam is made into non-existence, Israel's wasted, his, his seed, if that means kind of like progeny future, uh, is, is not, is made non-existence hyperbolically. Uh, some scholars argue about whether that might be taken more literally, like we, we've destroyed um, their agricultural uh, produce. But either way, we've got this reference here in around about 1220 BC to Israel. Uh, Yohanan is uh, followed by an Egyptian hieroglyph that designates a town, so it's that the town of Yonam is made into non-existence, whereas Israel is followed by a hieroglyph that means a, a people. Uh, a people group. So this is uh, evidence for the existence of Israel in Canaan uh, by at least 1220-ish BC. In terms of dating the existence of Israel in that area, this is a more controversial uh, but very interesting uh, find the so-called Berlin statue pedestal relief uh, and it's uh, controversial because of uh, scholars argue about when to date it 
whether it is fourteenth uh, to thirteenth century, so this sort of quite a big period of possible dating here. Uh, and there's a, a debate about the pronunciation of one of the reconstructed words because some of the um, hieroglyphs here are, are missing, chipped. You can see this is uh, the existence and then you have to kind of reconstruct what the rest of the uh, hieroglyphs were. Uh, and in, uh, we have here uh, mention of uh, Ashkelon, again Canaan and perhaps uh, Israel. There's a debate about the pronunciation of this reconstructed word, Israel. Uh, one school of thought argues that the, the presence of a sh, sh sound uh, invalidates it as possibly reading I Israel. Um, others argue that there's, well, there's no known location that uh, 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 the name could refer to other than Israel in the, the context of the other names on the relief. If Israel is indeed the correct reading, uh, the spelling of uh, Ashkelon and the proximity of the names of Ashkelon and Canaan and Israel are all reminiscent of the 13th century Minepta stele. Uh, however, the rendering of the name uh, Canaan, rather than just the kind of proximity in listing places, uh, the rendering of the name Canaan on this relief is more similar to the spelling in early uh, 14th century BC sources, but perhaps the sculptor just used an archaic form or copied an older relief, um, and so the debate goes round and round. Um, uh, but it's uh, one to you know keep an eye on <laughs> the debate as to whether this pushes the existence of Israel uh, in the, that area. Uh, earlier than the Menepta stele uh, currently does. And, and one last very interesting, pretty recent discovery to keep an eye on. Uh, in 2017, uh, excavations at uh, Kerbet al Mastara. I hope I'm getting that right. Uh, it's a, a 2.5 acre site in the Jordan Valley, about six miles north of Jericho. Uh, excavations revealed uh, various stone encloses, which you can see uh, in the picture here, uh, rectangular rooms, and pottery dating to the late Bronze Age 2 stroke Iron Age 1 periods. Um, the site appears to have been used, they think, by a nomadic or semi-nomadic group at the beginning of the Iron Age, around about 1200 BC. Uh, Ariel University archaeologist David Ben Shlomo says, We have not proved that these camps are from the period of the early Israelites, but it is possible. If they are, this might fit with the biblical story of the Israelites coming from east of the Jordan River, then crossing the Jordan and entering into the hill country of Israel later. So maybe this is archaeological evidence from the very early uh, Israelite uh, move into uh, that uh, Jordan uh, area uh, over the Jordan River. Uh, moving on to uh, the period from uh, around about Samson to Solomon. So we're moving on to the the era of the the, the sort of uh, the settlement area, the period of the judges. Um, Samson, for example, would be around about 1,100 BC, uh, and of course centering on um, the Israel area there on the map. 
Now this is a, a big blown up picture of a small thing, um, probably about the size of your thumbnail. We'll, we'll take uh, lots of looks at uh, big pictures of small things about the size of your thumbnail during this talk. They're, they're often very fascinating though. Uh, these little uh, clay seal impressions or boule as they're sometimes uh, called, or stone seals. This is an 11th century stone seal uh, that depicts uh, a man fighting a lion. Uh, discovered at uh, Beth Shemesh, the House of the Sun, in 2012. Uh, and the location, the date and the image, uh, which resembles other contemporary depictions of lions. You might see it's uh, a long tail around uh, on the left-hand side here. Uh, matches the uh, the Samson and the lion encounter in Judges 14. But again, of course, you, you, you can't look at this and say, you know, therefore that proves the story in Judges 14. Uh, it doesn't have any names uh, on it. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, uh, given the, the place and the dating, uh, that's quite interesting to find a picture of a man fighting a lion, uh, given the uh, biblical story of Samson and the lion. Uh, Beth Shemesh is uh, about 19 miles west of Jerusalem, uh, near the Iron Age border between uh, the Israelites and the Philistines. Uh, Samson was uh, said to be born, uh, lived part of his life and was indeed buried uh, across the valley from Beth Shemesh, according to Judges 13 uh, and 16. And the story of him killing a young lion in Judges 14 is said to have happened on the way from his family home in Timna, uh, a site identified as uh, Tel. Uh, Tel means uh, mound. Um, people tend to have build their um, little uh, uh, citadels on top of mounds, or, uh, villages on top of mounds, etc., uh, which was uh, a few miles from Beth Shemesh. So the the the, the, the placing of this discovery as well as the period that it comes from uh, is um, interesting. According to Samson's uh, story in Judges 16, uh, he died eventually in the temple of the Philistine god Dagon in Gaza um, by uh, pushing over some pillars uh, in the temple uh, causing the uh, temple to collapse. Well, we, we don't have the uh, the temple of the Philistine god in, in Gaza. Um, you know, people probably live over where it, it used to be and don't want their homes dug up in order to have some archaeology done. Um, but we do have what's probably a very similar uh, temple, uh, Philistine temple, uh, at uh, Tel Kassil, uh, um, which this temple was destroyed in the early 10th century BC, so a little uh, after uh, Samson's time, uh, but it's interesting to note in the archaeology of this uh, Philistine temple that we have here uh, signs of the bottoms of uh, two pillars uh, in uh, the middle of the temple. Uh, these pillars in this instance are about seven foot apart. Uh, but that the architectural design of the temple as described in the Judges uh, Samson story uh, does seem to fit with the archaeology of this other uh, temple that we have uh, from a similar uh, time period.
uh, is a somewhat uh, lurid uh, uh, newspaper uh, uh, article. A mysterious stone slab unearthed in Bible-era temple found near Jerusalem is being linked to the large stone that the Ark of the Covenant was said to rest upon. Uh, but actually there's some uh, serious archaeology uh, behind this. Um, you can see Jerusalem there and uh, Beth Shemesh uh, again uh, uh, on the left here and this picture of this sort of stone table uh, on um, top of these rocks uh, discovered uh, here. It's a fairly recent discovery. And there's this story of the, the Ark of the Covenant uh, resting at Beth Shemesh, uh, given it in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 6. Uh, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and they lifted their eyes and saw the Ark um, on the, this cart that was it was being sent to return by the Philistines. Uh, the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there and a large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord and the Levites took down the Ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it in which were the articles of gold and put them on the large stone. So there's this mention of this large stone in this story uh, and um, a large stone slab uh, we've seen the picture has been unearthed by archaeologists in a town near Jerusalem which may once have served as the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Israeli newspaper Haratz reports that the stone which is the size of a, a table was found inside a 3,000 year old square building that experts believe to have been a temple in the ancient settlement of Beth Shemesh uh, that's now the modern town of Bet Shemesh uh, 20 kilometers from Jerusalem. One of the leaders of the dig, Dr Zvi Liederman of Tel Aviv University uh, says this would be a rare case in which we can merge the biblical narrative with an archaeological find. Well, I don't think it's all that rare, uh, but uh, here uh, Dr. Lederman says uh, we can merge the biblical narrative with this archaeological find. Um, the article uh, here from Christian and uh, Evidence Society article on this uh, notes that the Ark later left Beth Shemesh and was taken to Jerusalem, but experts argue that the stone on which it had rested became revered by the local people who built a temple around it, uh, presumably having moved it uphill because this temple was on top of a hill. Uh, but then at a later date the town was captured by the Philistines who desecrated the building evidently, uh, which then re remained buried and forgotten uh, until being unearthed. And here's a, a picture of uh, one of the archaeologists with this uh, big stone in the in the temple uh, surrounding building. Uh, Abram Faust, a professor of archaeology at Bar-Alan University, told the Christian Post that uh, the finding in Beth Shemesh supports the archaeologist theory that there are, quote, very early traditions that made their way into the Bible. So again, you see, you have to get the, the, this balance of saying, you know, just because we find this stone and that seems to be able to be related to this story from the right kind of historical place and period and so on, uh, that of course doesn't prove everything uh, about the story that's related uh, in the Bible. At most you can say, so this biblical story uh, contains uh, elements of what seems to be um, demonstrably uh, um, verifiable 
uh, in the archaeological record but you know maybe one could say a story was made up around that historical core um, but one also has to ask about how the people who wrote the story got that information about that historical core especially on the theory that they are supposed to have made up the story uh, a long time you know hundreds and hundreds of years later um, in a situation where they didn't have the the benefit of archaeological research and so on. Uh, Faust warned that people shouldn't be so quick to dismiss that the stone tablet could have some connection to the Ark of the Covenant. Faust said this is a noticeable stone placed in a conspicuous position within what looks like a temple at sort of the right time so there are many dots that can be connected this find uh, to an old tradition that may have found its way into the biblical story okay shall we um, get back in and get back to uh, David and the uh, era of the United Kingdom uh, not the country that I'm currently speaking to you from uh, the UK but the United Kingdom era of the uh, the story in the Old Testament so King David around about a uh, thousand uh, BC uh, Dawkins again says King David made no impact either on archaeology or on written history outside the Bible and of course discounting the Bible as uh, written history uh, this suggests that if he existed at all he was probably a minor local chieftain rather than the great king of legend and song and Dawkins obviously doesn't know about the publication of fragments of an Old Testament Aramaic stele from the Tel Dan uh, in the mid 90s 93-95 um, which brought to life the, the first recognised non-biblical mention of the 10th century King David uh, in a text that reflected events of the year 841 uh, BC uh, and would have been set up this stele uh, at no great interval after that date uh, this stele famously mentions uh, quote unquote the house of David uh, it's the the bit in the slightly lighter highlighting here uh, Eric Klein who's a professor of classics and anthropology and history at George Washington University uh, explains that the finding of this inscription brought to an end the debate and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person that's from his Oxford University book uh, biblical archaeology a very short introduction but there are a number of other uh, inscriptions as well as the the Tel Dan inscription uh, we've got uh, particularly the Misha or Moabite uh, stone uh, from the 9th century BC uh, for example uh, we've got um, uh, Egyptologist Kenneth Kitchen uh, argues that the, the phrase the heights of David uh, are mentioned in uh, an Egyptian topographical lift uh, list from uh, Pharaoh uh, Shoshenk I. Uh, this topographical lift, uh, contextually speaking, locates David's heights in the Negev area, dates to around 95 BC, which is about 45 years after David's reign, uh, or as Kitchen says, within living memory of the man. Uh, 
In 2005, excavations in the hometown of uh, Goliath, according to the Bible, the Philistine city of Gath, uh, modern-day Tel Es-Safi, uh, revealed a Semitic-style uh, inscription on some pottery uh, dating to the 10th to 9th centuries BC, uh, bearing an Indo-European name that resembled, although wasn't, resembled Goliath, Aaron Meyer, head of the excavations there, uh, says the inscription shows us that David and Goliath's story reflects the cultural reality of the time. So uh, it's not the case that you no know, archaeologists dig up a, a pot that says belonging to Goliath. <laughs> Rather, archaeologists dig up a pot that has scratched in it a name that resembles that kind of name. That's of the, the, the right sort of linguistic uh, origin, as it were, around the right place and historical era. So again, it's this, it's this thing about the cultural verisimilitude of the biblical stories. Uh, getting things right in a way that would be hard to get things right if they these stories didn't originate from or aren't based upon at least information that originates from the time and place that they're talking about. Uh, and so that increases the historical plausibility of these stories, these sources. Uh, this is another of those enlarged pictures of a small thing about the size of your thumb, uh, a Davidic state boule discovered in 2014. Uh, just one example, uh, Jimmy Harden, Associate Professor uh, in Anthropology and Middle Eastern Cultures, uh, says our preliminary results indicated that this site where this was found is uh, integrated into a political entity that's typified by elite activities and sort of administrative activities, uh, suggesting that a, a state was already being formed in the 10th century BC. These boule date to the 10th century and this lends general support to the historical veracity of David and Solomon as recorded in the Hebrew biblical texts. Uh, in other words, this is archaeological evidence that there was uh, a widespread uh, centralised, organised state uh, in that uh, place and, and era. Uh, 2018, um, here's a photo of some discoveries from Tel Eton, uh, believed to be the biblical site of Eglon, yielded further proof of the biblical account of a, a kingdom uh, of that era. Um, Tel Eton on the, the southeastern edge of ancient Israel's territory. Uh, construction dating to the period of King David, including a construction type unique to Israel, the four-roomed house. Discoveries from this outpost city fit the biblical description of a, an expanding kingdom during the reign of David. So it's interesting, this is from uh, what's said to be the, the kind of outlying of that Davidic kingdom. So, you know, the idea of a, it was just a, a small little local uh, thiefdom kind of thing, uh, again, is undermined by this kind of archaeology. Uh, here's archaeologist uh, Dr. Elat Mezar from the Hebrew University. Uh, with uh, her discovery of um, what I think is very plausibly King David's uh, palace uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, you can look up uh, lots of um, videos and archaeology about that on, on YouTube and on, on the internet. Uh, and here's a very, uh, quite long but very fascinating quote from uh, some uh, Jewish archaeologists, uh, Josef Garfinkel, Sargadon and Michael Hazel, 
uh, from the conclusion of their fairly recent uh, 2018 book In the Footsteps of King David, Revelations from a Biblical City. Uh, and they, uh, at their conclusion, have this to say. Historical processes and cultural phenomena referred to in the Bible relating to the 10th century BCE, or what we tend to call BC, thus find concrete expression at Kerbet Kiefer in the same time period. Such clear examples of correspondence between archaeological finds and the biblical tradition stand in contrast to the theories of scholars advocating the minimalist position, the minimalist approach, and their assertion that the Bible was written during the Hellenistic or Persian period or at the end of the 7th century BCE and contains no historical memory but who have no data or finds to support such views. They say the Kerbet Kiefer excavations have provided archaeological evidence corroborating historical memories from the time of King David. The excavations showed that at the end of the 11th century BCE, an urban society and central monarchy began to take shape in the Kingdom of Judah. Uh, the proposal that the Bible was written many hundreds of years after the events it describes and that it reflects only the period in which it was written is no longer sustainable. Uh, after David, of course, we have uh, King Solomon um, into the uh, 10th century BCE, about 980, 927 period. Uh, here's Elit Mazar again uh, with uh, what she thinks is a, a wall from Solomon's reign uh, discovered in 2010. Uh, a 3,000 year old wall possibly built by Solomon um, and possibly referenced in 1 Kings 3 verse 1 unearthed in Jerusalem. Uh, she says the discovery appears to validate a biblical passage uh, 1 Kings 3 1. Uh, this 10th century wall is uh, 230 feet or 70 meters long, about 6 meters 20 foot tall. It stands uh, along what has, was then the, the edge of Jerusalem at that time, uh, between the Temple Mount and the ancient city of David. Uh, the stone barrier is part of a defensive complex that includes a gatehouse, uh, various adjacent building, uh, guard tower, uh, artifacts found in and around the complex pointed Mazar to the 10th century BC date. It's often the artifacts found with uh, a building or a wall or whatever that helps archaeologists date it, like the, the type of pottery. Um, sometimes they're lucky enough to you know, find coins with dates stamped on them. That, that really helps uh, and so on. Now, you've probably heard of King Solomon's Mines, uh, you know, the Ryder uh, Haggard uh, adventure stories. Various films have been made of that through the years. Uh, but this seems to be rooted actually in history, King Solomon's uh, Edomite Copper Mines. Um, this is uh, considered to be a, a late, uh, it was considered to be late Bronze Age site here, uh, related to the new Kingdom of Egypt in the 13th, early 12th centuries. Uh, however, University of Tel Aviv archaeologist Ben Yosef uh, and his team used high-precision radiocarbon dating of uh, dung left behind at the site by donkeys, uh, who used uh, work donkeys at the site, uh, as well as various textiles and other organic material from the site, and they showed that the mining camp's heyday was actually in the 10th century. 
um, the era of um, David and Solomon. Uh, according to Dr. Thomas Levy of the University of, San, of California, San Diego, uh, this research represents a, a confluence, again, a fitting together between the archaeological and scientific data in the Bible. Uh, the site, and here's a, a sort of top-down aerial view of the site, contains uh, about a hundred buildings, including a fortress, uh, in the middle of 24 acres of land uh, that is now covered in black slag from the mining. Uh, archaeologist Ben Yosef says that if the Bible's claim that David brought the Edomites to heal is accurate, uh, there's a serious possibility that Jerusalem got its wealth from taxing these mining operations. Now Solomon embarked on a building campaign, of course, that included the first temple in Jerusalem, uh, according to 1 Kings 7. Uh, and it's interesting to note that many of the implements used in worship in the temple in Jerusalem were made of bronze. And bronze requires copper uh, to form the alloy. Um, have a look at 1 Kings 746. Uh, 1 Kings 1425, in the fifth year of the king uh, Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. It's interesting to note here that the bottom stratum of the mining site uh, revealed a period of extensive mining that lasted about 40 years, around about 940 BC, producing nine feet of slag. But there was then a major disruption in mining around about 910 BC, followed by a resumption in the mining in the 9th century. Uh, in the layers associated with that disruption in the mining operation, archaeologists found an Egyptian scarab from the eastern Nile region and an amulet uh, that's linked to the Egyptian goddess Mut. Now, 1 Kings 14.25 says that after Solomon's death, Israel and Judah were invaded by Shishank, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh who began raiding and conquering much of Palestine uh, beginning around about uh, 95 uh, BC. So after the United Kingdom era, we come to what I'm calling a house divided here, with a <laughs> division uh, between uh, Israel and uh, Judah. Uh, so this sort of uh, early uh, 9th to uh, early uh, 8th uh, century BC uh, era, we get this split between the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, and in, in um, sort of uh, the history of the uh, kingdoms around, we have uh, the um, Assyrian um, kind of kingdoms here with uh, particularly highlighting Shalamanser the uh, third around 858 to 824 BC because we can go to uh, a marvelous uh, piece that's in the British Museum uh, and my photos uh, of this piece from the British Museum here uh, I, I just love the name of this it's, it's like something out of some sort of fantasy novel because this this is officially called the black obelisk of Shalamanser the third you could kind of hear the the Hollywood score in the background with a dum 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 in the background. The black uh, obelisk of Salamanca the third. He was king of Assyria, and this is very interesting because uh, we have various uh, relief panels 
around the four sides of this obelisk with uh, cuneiform writing. You can see the cuneiform writing uh, at the top and bottom here. Uh, and this obelisk may feature the earliest ancient depiction of a biblical figure. Uh, Jehu, king of Israel from the 9th century. Uh, you can look up his story in 2 Kings 9 to 10. Uh, let me give you a slightly clearer, closer up uh, image, blow up of this image here. And we can see here a Shalomancer on the left and this uh, kneeling figure here uh, is quite probably Jehu. Uh, the text uh, translates that relates to this panel translates uh, the tribute of Jehu, son of Omri. I received from him silver, gold, a golden bowl, a golden vase with a painted bottom, golden tumblers, golden buckets, tin, a staff for a king, spears. So it's talking about the tribute uh, that Jehu, son of Omri, uh, gave to his overlord. And there's Jehu and his Shalamansa and their overlapping reigns. Now, when uh, Sargon II, king of Assyria, died in 705 BC, various uh, subject states to the Assyrian Empire tried to uh, throw off their overlords and Hezekiah king of Judah famously uh, stopped paying tribute anymore and entered into a league uh, with Egypt uh, against Assyria. Well in 703 BC King Sennacherib, Sargon's son uh, began various campaigns to quash this wave of opposition to Assyrian rule and uh, Hezekiah, uh, of course, was relying upon and expecting the Egyptians to come to his aid, uh, something which the uh, Old Testament prophets uh, warned him against, uh, and they didn't. <laughs> the reed of, of Egypt uh, should not be uh, rested upon. So here we have uh, Hezekiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah is in this, this period, uh, around 700 BC, and Sennacherib in the Assyrian Empire. So, 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and didn't serve him. Uh, well, here we have a, a seal, again in, enlarged, this is quite small, a seal of King Hezekiah. And uh, this seal says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. Um, so here's when we start you know, getting into the historical period when uh, much more stuff has survived and been discovered uh, and we start being able to, to pin down the existence of particular people in particular roles that are mentioned within the text. Not, not so much just stuff about the, the cultural plausibility and verisimilitude of the, the Old Testament stories but even down to things like the existence of a particular person with a particular name in a particular place at a particular time in a particular social role and here we have the seal of King Hezekiah. Uh, Hezekiah of course particularly famous for Hezekiah's tunnel um, various springs just outside Jerusalem and he didn't want uh, any invading surrounding army to have access to that clean clear uh, water supply but to keep it uh, for Jerusalem and so dug this uh, tunnel famously to get the water into Jerusalem uh, and there's a famous uh, um, uh, inscription uh, in the tunnel 
that marks the place where they had two different teams of diggers kind of digging towards each other you know listening through the rock for the for the taps of the other team to try and bury towards each other uh, and uh, astonishingly they did, they did manage to, to, to find each other and work their way towards each other uh, and to connect up uh, to each other to get this spring water into uh, Jerusalem. So he prepared for the oncoming assault and in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them according to 2 Kings 18.13. Uh, and here we have just one panel from uh, uh, an extensive series of panels that we now have in the British Museum that relate to this Assyrian campaign uh, against the, the cities of Judah and particularly uh, the town of Lachish. It's called the, the Lachish um, uh, murals or um, reliefs. Uh, you can see here some rather gruesome things happening to uh, Jewish people at the hands of Assyrian soldiers. Uh, here's a full uh, picture of some of those panels. We've got a sort of whole sort of three-sided uh, panel, three-sided room uh, panels with these these uh, reliefs. Lachish was um, basically kind of the second cities or one of the, the other chief cities of, of Judah. And in 701 BC, it was captured by Sennacherib and his army. And you can see here the depiction of people going up up ramps, uh, taking up sort of siege machines and so on to the to the walls, uh, archers. Um, this was the, the area that we had that, that larger uh, close up of um, people uh, attacking, throwing down various things from the walls on the attackers, etc. It's interesting to to note that it's um, these panels celebrate the conquering of Lachish and not Jerusalem. Indeed, according to the book of Isaiah, chapter thirty-seven, uh, Sennacherib received a report from Te uh, uh, that Tirkar, the king of Cush, was marching out to fight against him. Uh, when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with this word: "Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah." Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Uh, who was this King Tirkah of Cush? Uh, nothing was known about him until some archaeologists dug up <laughs> some material relating to him. And here again from the British Museum we have a, a statue of King Tirkah uh, under a ram that represents uh, the protection of his god uh, Amun. This is uh, Tirka and Amun from the British Museum uh, and so uh, Jerusalem got a sort of temporary relief as uh, uh, this other king uh, rebelled and Sennacherib basically said well I'm gonna go off and deal with this little upstart then I'll be back for you. Isaiah 37 again, uh, this is what the Lord says, according to Isaiah, concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or building a siege ramp against it, like at Lachish. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant, for the Davidic kingdom, uh, etc. So, uh... Sennacherib obviously uh, has heard about this and sort of saying, you know, don't let your God deceive you into thinking that you're going to be safe. I'll be back. Like the Terminator. I'll be back. So, 
Isaiah, though, continues to tell the story that the angel of the Lord went out and put to death uh, 5,180 would be a sort of more accurate translation here, I think, men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. Didn't come back. Well. Talking of Isaiah, it's interesting. There's a very recent find. Uh, again, a, a seal impression uh, from 2018. Uh, this was published. Uh, a seal with uh, the words on it. And it does have to be partially reconstructed because, as you can see, the seal is partially broken. Uh, but it, uh, this is a discovery from Elliot Mazar and her team. Uh, a seal bearing the inscription belonging to Isaiah the prophet. Uh, Mazar says that just south of the Temple Mount uh, in the Ophel excavations, uh, Mazar and our team has discovered a small seal impression that reads belonging to Isaiah Nevi, Nevi um, prophet. Uh, the upper portion of the impression is missing and its left side is damaged. Uh, reconstructing a few Hebrew letters in this damaged area would cause the impression to read belonging to Isaiah the prophet uh, and that uh, the place and the era that it finds also uh, of course ties ties in uh, but we don't just have stuff from the Bible and from Jerusalem from this era we have stuff of course from the from the Assyrian side this is um, again from the British Museum what's known as Sennacherib's prism uh, a prism with lots of cuneiform writing in it and here's a translation of part of Sennacherib's prism telling the same historical story from the Assyrian side of things. So here's Sennacherib saying, As for Hezekiah the Judite, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by levelling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot by mines, tunnels and breaches, I besieged and took them. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. Now, it's not talking about siege ramps here but rather the kind of earthworks of laying siege to a town in terms of I'm going to stop people getting to it or coming out of it. We've surrounded it. Um, earthworks against him. So the one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery because we've, we've sort of walled them off. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land, and to Mitty, king of Ashod, Peldi, king of Kirkron, Selbli, king of Gaza, I gave them, blah, blah, blah. Now there's a kind of, okay, this is an argument from silence, but it does seem to be a quite astonishing and interesting and significant silence here that he should mention about the storming and the taking of all of these other cities, should mention walling up Hezekiah in Jerusalem and then just leave and talk about what he did with the other cities he doesn't doesn't say he conquered uh, jerusalem which of course uh, fits with the biblical story if we compare jerusalem with lachish here, here we have lachish we have um, the assault ramp an assault ramp built up against the walls of, of lachish in 701 
Um, on seeing that the Assyrians were building a ramp, the Judeans built, built a counter ramp, <laughs> ramp to the ramp, forming a new defensive line 10 foot above the main wall. So they were trying to like build up to the wall and they're trying to increase their wall. Uh, there's no evidence that Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem in this way in the archaeology. Um, I do have some photographs from the British Museum of, of some archaeology of, of the, the siege at Lachish. Um, we have um, arrowheads here. Iron arrowheads, bone arrowheads from the Lachish battle, um, uh, slingshot um, shots from that battle and again we don't have that in the archaeological record uh, at the right period uh, in Jerusalem. This is a quote from the Greek historian Herodotus in the 5th century BC, so, so uh, quite a lot later but still interesting. That the Greek historian Herodotus writes um, in his The Histories, uh, book two, uh, about the destruction of Sennacherib's army at what he calls the entrance to Egypt. And then, if you look back to our map, you see you know Israel is basically between Egypt and uh, the heart of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, he uh, Herodotus says that a plague of field mice chewed up the Assyrians' leather bowstrings and quivers and shield straps. Uh, thus uh, taking away the fighting power of the Assyrian army. Uh, and he attributes that destruction of the Assyrian army's fighting capacity to divine intervention, um, but of course not, not to um, you know, God. Um, but it is interesting that they, this uh, you know, um, secular, as it were, um, this pagan uh, non-Jewish historian uh, records uh, something happening to Sennacherib's army uh, in that area that denudes it of its fighting power. So again we, we can't turn to the extra biblical evidence to prove every little jot and tittle of the biblical story but it is interesting that we can show using extra biblical evidence that unlike Lachish, Sennacherib didn't attack Jerusalem, no ramp or shooting of arrows happened against Jerusalem in that campaign, Sennacherib didn't take Jerusalem, the Assyrian army was apparently suddenly rendered impotent, um, even without human intervention, according to Herodotus, and so Sennacherib returned to Nineveh, didn't return to finish the job as he had before. I mean, he'd been going to do the job, gone off to Cush, saying, you know, I'll be back, comes back, but doesn't finish the job. Uh, and that all kind of fits together. We're coming on now to the, the era of the exile in Babylon. Babylon, by the rivers of Babylon, etc. So here we have uh, the era of Judah alone and then the, the Babylonian exile. We're getting into the era here of um, Nebuchadnezzar, um, 605, 562 BC kind of era. Uh, and here is uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and here is a, again one of those little baked cuneiform tablets uh, with uh, cuneiform writing um, th there's lots of um, opportunities by the way if you, you or anyone you know uh, is, is looking for a field to get into uh, we have loads and loads of Babylonian sort of um, cuneiform um, tablet literature 
available and very small percentage of it has been translated there's not very many pe people who uh, learn to tr translate uh, cuneiform writing uh, and uh, so um, it seems uh, that there's quite a kind of call for people with that kind of uh, expertise um, uh, and um, you know it's a maybe an opportunity uh, field uh, to go into not not one that my school's career advisor ever mentioned to me but there we go so here we have a, a tablet that's one of a series that summarizes uh, the principal events of uh, each year uh, um, this one goes from um, 747 bc to 280 uh, these these uh, babylonian chronicles uh, and these babylonian chronicles record that in 605 nebuchadnezzar who was the babylonian crown prince at the time replaced his father nebuchadnezzar as commander-in-chief and led the army up the euphrates to the river of charchemesh and defeated the egyptians and then later that year nebuchadnezzar died and nebuchadnezzar returned to babylon to be crowned and in 601 he marched to egypt uh, but withdrew on meeting the egyptian army things didn't go particularly well he then re-equipped his army and marched to Syria in 599 marching west again in December 598 as Jehoiakim the king of Judah had ceased to pay tribute uh, this is a kind of recurring issue uh, between subject states and, and overlords uh, Nebuchadnezzar's army besieged Jerusalem just like uh, uh, had happened before with the Assyrians uh, and he uh, unlike the Assyrians captured Jerusalem on the 16th of March 597 BC and uh, the new king of Judah Jehoiachin was captured and carried off to Babylon and then a series of expeditions to Syria brings that chronicle to an end in 594 BC well here's another uh, seal impression a clay seal that was found in the ashes of a house that burnt down when Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered Jerusalem in the 6th century BC and this seal uh, contains uh, bears the words uh, belonging to Nathan Melech servant of the king uh, this is quite a distinctive name that's found in the Old Testament story of King Josiah of Judah a reformer who removed symbols of pagan worship from Jerusalem according to 2 Kings 23 uh, again of course it's not possible to be certain that the name on the seal refers to the same person uh, mentioned in two kings uh, but the description of Nathan Malachek as an official servant of the king is is a match the location and the timing and a match and the names fairly uh, distinctive as names go evidently so maybe this uh, is the right guy so we've got this uh, the fall of Jerusalem and, and exile uh, Nebuchadnezzar installs Zedekiah as a vassal king um, but he revolts Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem uh, in 589 BC and then broke through the walls 5876-ish Zedekiah and his followers were captured uh, on the plains of Jericho and after seeing his sons killed Zedekiah was blinded and taken captive to Babylon where he remained a prisoner until his death um, here we have a quote from uh, Shimon Gibson from 2019 talking about uh, couple of these finds we see in the pictures here uh, found in Jerusalem from that era he says the combination of an ashy layer full of artifacts mixed with arrowheads and a very special ornament I think this is like a, a thing that would dangle from your ears kind of bunch of grapes uh, earring uh, 
is uh, indicates some kind of devastation and destruction at the time. Uh, nobody abandons golden jewellery, and nobody has arrowheads in their domestic refuse, he says. Uh, the arrowheads are Scythian arrowheads, known to be used by the Babylonian warriors. Together, this evidence points to the historical conquest of the city by Babylon. Now, in the Bible, uh, the prophet Ezekiel has this prophecy about uh, Tyre uh, kind of rejoicing over the fall of Jerusalem. And there's some interesting history and archaeology that we can um, bring into the discussion here. Uh, the book of Ezekiel um, completed around about 575-65 BC uh, provides a prediction about the fate of the powerful seaport city-state of Tyre after the Babylonian exile. This is in um, Ezekiel 26. Uh, this prophecy, uh, going by the book's own uh, internal dating, uh, dates from about 586 BC, the 11th year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. And there are basically several specific predictions. Um, it's not just a, a generalised prediction. There are some, some specifics here that we can look at. And the specifics seem to be this, that one or more nation will attack Tyre, that those attacks will be successive, there'll be successive attacks. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia will attack. Nebuchadnezzar will first attack the coastal towns. The Tyre will be levelled. The rubble will be put into the sea. Tyre will become a place where fishermen dry their nets and the inhabitants will never rebuild. They won't kind of rebuild their city and their culture. You can see here from this uh, map picture that there's a sort of island fortress of Tyre out uh, just off the coast of mainland Tyre. Well, about 25 years after that prophecy is said to be made in Ezekiel, Tyre was besieged for 13 years by Nebuchadnezzar. And he took the main city, the mainland city of Tyre, in 573 BC. And at that stage, the island citadel of Tyre uh, surrendered uh, to him. Well, some 250 years later, in 322 BC, Alexander the Great would attack Tyre. But he didn't have a navy at his disposal. Uh, so he had to be a bit creative about how he did this. And he used the rubble from the old mainland city that had been con conquered uh, and slave labour from surrounding nations to build a causeway out to the island in order to capture it. Uh, to obtain enough material for the causeway, the mainland site was basically scraped clean. And we can see here in the map, uh, again, the, the offland off citadel, and then the causeway was built using the rubble from the mainland city here. And we have this map of Tyre in about 322, and uh, a map of Tyre in, from the 19th century in 1873 indeed and you can see that this uh, kind of isthmus has built up uh, over time because of the construction of the the causeway uh, out there so here's a, a, a Ezekiel in this um, just at the beginning of the Babylonian exile period uh, after uh, 
treating Tyre with the greatest atrocity. Uh, this is from uh, the book Historical Studies and Recreations by Shoshi Chandadat. Uh, after treating Tyre with the greatest atrocity, Alexander rebuilt and replanted it that future generations might regard him as the founder of a new city, relocated. Uh, although there is now a town of Tyre in the vicinity of the ancient city, uh, it's got no connection with the old city, which is long since gone. Um, fishermen have used the spot for generations for spreading their nets, says uh, Robert D. Culver. And so here we have a picture of the extent of the, the Babylonian Empire uh, in the uh, 7th to 6th century BC. Here's uh, Babylon uh, on the Euphrates uh, River. Over here, uh, Israel, Jerusalem has now been, been conquered by these guys. And we get, of course, the, the story that we find at the beginning of the book of Daniel. Uh, about uh, Daniel and his friends, uh, various people going into exile uh, in Babylon. Interestingly enough, Greek historians, uh, Greek ancient historians, ascribed the, the building of Babylon uh, to one Queen Shamu Ramat, uh, a queen mother in Assyria, who actually, we now know, had nothing to do with the building of Babylon there. The ancient Greek historians just got this wrong. But the Bible got it right. Uh, according to Daniel 4.30, um, for example, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence, my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty, etc., etc.? So uh, the Bible uh, attributes this to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, as Geoffrey Shaler mentions, until about a century ago, it was commonly claimed by skeptics that Nebuchadnezzar had never even existed. And Greek historians attributed the building to this, uh, this Queen Mother figure. Uh, but, um, you know, here is uh, a stone from ancient Babylon that mentions Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, who cares for Esagil and Ezida eldest son of Nibal Pulsar, king of Babylon. So when Nebuchadnezzar had stuff built, he'd like to have his name stamped on it. Um, and we have various uh, building bricks and so on that mentioned uh, Nebuchadnezzar in this uh, context. Here's a, a cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this clay cylinder found in the ruins of Babylon Again, cuneiform text all over it describes three palaces which Nebuchadnezzar built for himself in Babylon. Uh, this, again, a little find a scholar made whilst doing some work in the British Museum, looking at these little tablets with cuneiform all over them. Uh, and this tablet mentions one uh, Nebu Saskim, chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II. Um, so, as uh, reported in the Telegraph in 2007, uh, Michael Jose, visiting professor from Vienna, made a discovery in the British Museum that supports the view that the historical books of the Old Testament are based on fact. Searching for Babylonian financial accounts among the tablets, Professor Jose suddenly came across Nabu Sharushaukin, described in a hand uh, 2,500 years old as the chief eunuch of Nebuchadnezzar II, King of Babylon. Well, Professor Jerson, a Syriologist, checked the Old Testament and in chapter 39 of the book of Jeremiah he found 
spelled slightly differently but they, they didn't have um, uh, set standardized spelling um, he found uh, the same name uh, Nibu Saskim uh, the tablets dated to the 10th year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II so 595 BC which is 12 years before the siege of Jerusalem quote here from Dr. Gerser saying uh, finding something like this tablet where we see a person mentioned in the Bible making an everyday payment to the temple in Babylon and quoting the exact date is quite extraordinary. Uh, we mentioned uh, King Jehoiachin. Uh, Kyle Butt here mentions how Nebuchadnezzar came against the capital of Jerusalem and besieged it and uh, quote from 2 Kings 24 about Jehoiachin uh, king of Judah, his mother, servants, princes, officers went out to the king and the king uh, took him uh, prisoner. Uh, when the, the fantastically named Evil Merodach, uh, now evil in this context doesn't have the same uh, connotation that it has for us in, in English about something bad, something evil. Um, this was a, quite a, a common usage in, in name here, uh, so uh, from the Babylonians, uh, Evil Merodach. Uh, it's not casting aspersions upon his character. Uh, became king of Babylon, he took pity on Jehoiachin and released him from prison. And the biblical text mentions that the Babylonian king spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and, quote, gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him. So he became a kind of favourite in the court, evidently, according to 2 Kings 25. And in addition, the Bible says that evil Merodach gave Jehoiachin a set amount of provisions. This is from 2 Kings 25, verse 30, where it says, And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Now, fascinatingly, we actually have the administrative documents in cuneiform from Babylon that have been found that record you know, various events and transactions during the reign of evil, evil Merodach and Jehoiachin is named legibly in these tablets not only as you mentioned but documentation for an allotment of grain oil and foodstuffs is also provided so we kind of have the the Babylonian uh, chit of this ration allotment that's mentioned in 2 Kings 2530 uh, 15 liters of sesame oil for Jehoiachin king of Judah 2.5 liters of sesame oil for the five sons of the king of Judah 4 liters of sesame oil for eight men of Judah half a liter each etc now you know the famous story of uh, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego uh, Daniel's friends who were given uh, Babylonian names as part of their kind of cultural uh, indoctrination at Babylonian University as Babylon's training them up to uh, act within the Babylonian civil service um, and uh, they wouldn't uh, worship the, uh, the golden statue etc and were you know threatened with being thrown into this furnace and were thrown into the furnace um, with interesting uh, unexpected results. Well, burning uh, people as a penalty for crimes uh, does appear twice in the Code of Hammurabi, a law code set forth by the Babylonian king in the 18th century BC. Um, and another early Babylonian monarch called Rimsin, uh, we know, used burning for execution. Uh, so it's not implausible that Nebuchadnezzar may have uh, you know, pulled this terrible punishment uh, out of his back pocket, as it were, for the occasion. 
Um, according to the BibleHistory.net website, uh, a five-sided clay prism found in Babylon, now in the Istanbul Museum, gives a list of men and their titles, and three men listed on the prism have pronunciations that are very similar to the names of Daniel's three friends were given. Uh, again, you can't be certain that they're the same people, uh, but uh, the names are at least similar, so some cultural verisimilitude. Um, found on the list is the name uh, Ardi Nabu, uh, official of the royal prince. Uh, this name is the equivalent of the Aramaic name Abegnigo, Ardi Nabu Abegnigo, and may in fact be the first mention of one of Daniel's friends outside the Bible, if it's the same person. Another friend uh, name found on the list is Hananu, it's commander of the king's merchants. The name Hananu may be the Babylonian equivalent of the Hebrew name Hananiah. Uh, another name on the list is Meshlim Marduk, uh, Marduk being one of the Babylonian gods. Uh, Meshlim Marduk, uh, an official of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, if Marduk is left out of this name, this reference to the god, uh, then we wind up with um, maybe Meshalim, which may refer to Mishael, Michael, uh, Mishael. Uh, so some similarity at least, but interesting that we have similarities to, to all of those names um, on this list from Babylon. What about the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Here's one of those um, reliefs from the British Museum. Um, in ancient Assyria, uh, lion hunting was actually considered to be like the sport of kings. Um, nowadays, if you know anything certainly about the British royal family, it's polo. <laughs> the sport of uh, uh, Prince Charles plays polo uh, in ancient Babylon. Um, you know, they were, went a little bit more full-blooded and uh, lion hunting was evidently where it was at. Uh, so. Uh, the sport of kings in ancient Assyria, it was meant to be symbolic of the ruling monarch's duty to perfect and, and fight for his people. And we've got this sculpted uh, relief that's now in the British Museum, uh, illustrating the sporting exploits of the last great uh, Assyrian king, uh, Ashurbanipal, from uh, the 7th century BC, uh, created for his palace at Nineveh in modern-day Iraq. And you see I've circled up here this uh, lion pen, they didn't just like go hunting wild lions but evidently they would like capture lions and have uh, a, a store of lions in capture uh, who could then be released in like uh, the royal park um, to be hunted um, and next uh, slide i've got a nice close-up picture of uh, like the the the, uh, the king wrestling uh, with a lion uh, stabbing him through with a sword there take that lion so uh, we do know that uh, the lion hunting and the keeping of, of lions uh, you know keeping lions in a, in a den in the royal park it wasn't just like you'd have to go out and find some wild lions if uh, it crossed your mind to throw someone into a into a lion den as a, as a punishment uh, towards the end of the Daniel story we have the famous incident of Belshazzar's feast um, pieces of famous classical music written about this um, but was Belshazzar really king of Babylon as Daniel 5 claims uh, you know, some scholars have said that the, the fact that he wasn't 
Uh, and they use this as evidence that the Book of Daniel's not historically reliable after all. Well, the Babylonian texts tell us that at the time of the feast, so like 539 BC, there was another king, uh, Nabidonis, who was Belshazzar's father. So wouldn't that make uh, Belshazzar crown prince at the time rather than king? So it seems that the, the Bible gets it wrong according to the Babylonian uh, data. Well, a researcher called George Heathwhite, uh, who was then a final year student at Cambridge University here in the UK, uh, reading Assyrian, uh, some years ago made a discovery whilst translating some uh, 6th century BC Babylonian tablets for his dissertation. Uh, George was following the lives of some uh, Juden, uh, Judean exiles in Babylon and he came across uh, a particular character who was given the uh, the adopted name of Belshazzar, uh, that is, uh, Lord Protect the King. Well, this Babylonian name adoption was a, a custom for those who worked in the government, uh, as we know from, from Daniel's case and his friends. Uh, well, this Judean uh, Belshazzar appears in uh, three different texts that uh, George found, and in the first two uh, texts he's Belshazzar, uh, but in the third text he, he changes his name back to one which reflects his Hebrew origins. Uh, and George wondered what might have uh, caused him to want to stop being called Belshazzar. Well, interestingly, research has shown that, that in Babylonian times you weren't allowed to have the same name as the king. So if, if you had the adopted name of Belshazzar uh, and then someone also called Belshazzar became king, well, it was time to change your name. And George points out that this uh, Judean government worker uh, may well have changed his name for other reasons, but it is pretty plausible that he did so because Nabodonid's son Belshazzar really had become king and that's why he had to change his name. Uh, but wasn't Nabodonus himself still king according to the Babylonian records? Well, another text translated by a scholar called Gibson uh, records that in the year 552 Nabodonus relocated to the Arabian desert and made his son co-regent, like co-king, ruling in Babylon. And this actually explains why Belshazzar offered Daniel, in reward, uh, the title of third highest in the kingdom uh, after Nabonidus and Belshazzar. So, fascinatingly, th this year, 552, was the very same year that uh, the Judean civil servant that George had researched changed his name so that he wouldn't be called Belshazzar anymore this year that uh, Nabodonus relocates to the Arabian desert and makes his son co-regent, not just the prince anymore. So uh, for this research George uh, received uh, a university award. Well done George. And uh, although it's circumstantial evidence, it is as he puts it, uh, perhaps if correct, a little bit more evidence to counter the popular opinion that Belshazzar being called king in Daniel 5.1 is an error. So Daniel 5.29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was uh, 
clothed in purple, gold chain placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar is king, but his co-regent is still the junior. Uh, so technically he's number two, even though he's not prince and he is king. And this is why Daniel is given the rank of third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, here we actually have a cylinder uh, of Nabodonus uh, where he mentions his co-regent uh, Belshazzar, my firstborn son, the offspring of my heart. Uh, and uh, various cuneiform temple receipts from Sippar show Belshazzar presenting animals as an offering of the king. It seemed that the king had uh, become more religious and wanted to go off and sort of concentrate on the, the religious functions of the king, leaving the administrative functions uh, to his firstborn son uh, and then of course Babylon does fall and uh, King Cyrus of Persia comes in and here we have a, a, a cylinder with uh, Cyrus making a, a proclamation in, in Babylon saying I entered Babylon as a friend he's just conquered them I entered as a friend and established my royal residence in the palace of the princes amid jubilation and rejoicing the Babylonians were just so happy that I'd taken over my numerous troops walked around Babylon in peace um, possibly because there were numerous troops uh, I don't know uh, I also restored to the cities on the other side of the Tigris their hitherto long ruined temples etc I also gathered up their one-time inhabitants and returned them to their homeland so he had a, a new policy and he let uh, people that had been conquered and taken to Babylon he let them go home and rebuild their temples and so on um, as uh, had been prophesied as we've seen okay let's uh, try and wrap things uh, up here uh, with our last section um, responding to Dawkins doubts about the Old Testament and applying some lessons learned what sort of overall kind of uh, take-home practical points might we we take from from some of this so we've seen how uh, Dawkins makes these assertions unreferenced assertions about scholars not taking the Old Testament seriously um, about um, sort of uh, the unbelievability of, of miracle claims based on uh, warmed over humanism uh, about uh, an absence of extra biblical evidence for certain truth claims and, uh, and that there's evidence that directly contradicts um, the Old Testament record and I think these claims are basically boiled down to a matter of false generalization and fallacious humanism arguments from silence which are always um, tricky and uh, I think particularly precarious in the way that Dawkins uh, uses them and the way that uh, minimalists tend uh, to kind of use them and uh, often uh, unfortunately on Dawkins part a matter of, of ignorance of evidence uh, that we we do have on the issues that he, that he talks about um, we've seen uh, a range of scholars who do take the Old Testament seriously uh, as history uh, I put a number of them up here um, perhaps the best single uh, sort of scholarly go-to source on this um, although becoming a little bit old now it'd be nice to have an updated edition of this uh, though Kenneth Kitchen is um, shall we say a, a, a senior scholar <laughs> in the field now uh, is his book on the reliability of the Old Testament which is quite a doorstop um, on the um, 
Exodus issue, Did I Not Bring Israel Out of Egypt, is a really interesting uh, set of papers edited by Hofmeyer and Millard and Rendsburg. Uh, a little older book, but still uh, very interesting material in there by Millard and Wiseman editing their book on essays on the patriarchal narratives. Um, um, books by Hofmeyer on Israel in Egypt, um, general books on Old Testament history of the Old Testament by folks like Ian Pravan and V. Phillips Long, Tremper Longman's their book, A Biblical History of Israel, now in its second edition. Um, the Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith by Hofmeyer and Magary. Um, again, uh, Millard and Hofmeyer and Baker editing a book on faith, tradition and history. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et there are lots of books that I could put up, but I, but I think these are some of the uh, the best uh, starting sources to go to. There, and there's an increasing number of um, well-illustrated uh, books on uh, biblical, and particularly Old Testament uh, archaeology, that have come out in the in the last few years. Um, we've seen contra. Uh, Dawkins' humanism, um, actually we've seen extra biblical evidence that at least corroborates miraculous events or prophecies from the Old Testament. Um, there's prophecies about Jerusalem and Tyre and the return from exile. Um, although Dawkins asserts an absence of extra biblical evidence and this argument from silence, um, it's also actually an argument from ignorance, as we've seen um, in instances like you know the, the existence of David with the Tell Dan and other steles. Um, he sometimes asserts that there's biblical evidence against the historical truth of Old Testament stories, uh, but again, a matter of ignorance. Um, back to our discussion of Abraham and bacterian camels. Um, so there's a lot of kind of misinformation um, being popularly circulated uh, that represents the sort of popularization of uh, the sort of minimalist school approach um, which puts the the writing of these supposedly historical accounts from the Old Testament uh, much later in history disconnected from the time and place that the stories are about and so treats them as sort of unreliable legend um, but uh, in all sorts of ways, um, in the older stories, at least at the level of cultural uh, veracity, uh, in some of the uh, later stories, even down to details of particular people having particular names in particular places at particular times, having particular jobs, um, we can show that the Old Testament, where we happen to be able to check it against the historical and archaeological record, does uh, repeatedly get things right and although that does not prove the historicity of the Old Testament it, it should be evidence that we take into account and that should I think increase our um, uh, our trust in those sources of testimony and does it seems to me undermine uh, the core of the the minimalist theory and open us up uh, at the very least to being um, open to being somewhere on that a more maximalist uh, sliding scale uh, of um, trust in the Old Testament historicity uh, records.